Church of Christ presents Take Courage, the sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 10th, 2019. Living God, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts a doorway to you, for you are surely our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Work, for God is with you. God's spirit abides among you. Do not fear. Have you ever looked back and thought, those were the days, the days when fashion was fashionable, when movies were well-written and didn't rely on the things being blown up? Those were the days when music was made for dancing, when jokes were truly funny, the days when people had more time for each other and didn't always have their faces stuck in their phones. Those were the days when life made sense to me. Those were the days when life was good. Those were the good old days. This is a game that clergy like to play about the life of the church a lot. I don't mean our individual congregations or even our denomination so much, but the life of the church writ large, the life of Christianity as an organization. It is, I suppose, our way of whistling in the dark. Those were the days when the church was full every Sunday, when lots of people belonged to churches and came most weeks, not just Christmas and Easter, when the work of the church wasn't all left to the faithful core. Those were the days when only a few people could be described as the hatched, matched, and dispatched variety people who only stopped by church to be baptized, married, and buried. The church doesn't even get to do much of the matching anymore. And baptism, even if you're born into a family that ticks the box Christian on a form, baptism isn't a given. Those were the days when the Sunday school rooms were full and it was easy to get people to volunteer to teach. Well, wait a minute. That's always been hard. (laughs) But back in the day, there were more than enough children to fill up the classrooms. And there was money in the budget to run all kinds of programs, pageants and work trips, soup kitchens and refugee sponsorships, vacation Bible school and book club, whatever set of programs and projects a particular congregation found most meaningful. Those were the days. It's not just anxious clergy taking the temperature of the church and of their congregation and wanting to make sure they are doing a good enough job, although that's a real thing. There have been all kinds of sociological and demographic studies of religious practice in America. And those studies back up the experience of those of us who are here week after week after week, that there is a thinning in the ranks Some people go so far as to claim that the church is dying. It is no wonder that we sometimes long for some mythical golden age in the past, if only we could get back there. I wonder if that feels true for you, either about church or in your life, in your work life, 
or your family life, or in the broader culture we are all swimming in? Does your mind go back to a time when? When things were, if not better, then different in ways that you miss and long for. Well, according to today's scripture from the First Testament, this tendency to look back and long for the glory days of the past is an experience that human beings have been having for thousands of years. Today's reading from Haggai is an account of a faith community wrestling with change in the midst of cultural and political upheaval. To these people, to people who have returned from their exile in Babylon to a still demolished Jerusalem, whose temple lay in ruins, to this community, a community trying to find equilibrium under the watchful eye of the Persians, God speaks. God says through the prophet Haggai, don't be afraid. Take courage, O Zerubbabel. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Take courage, all you people. Work, for I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. The entire book of Haggai, which is only two chapters long, covers a span of just three or four months in the year 520 BCE. It's unique in the, in the Bible to have a text when we know exactly when it was happening. We know the specificity of this human experience that people were sharing. The setting is Jerusalem, and it's about nine years after King Cyrus of Persia has announced that the people who had been exiled by the Babylonians could now return to their homeland. They could settle in, rebuild, and worship in their traditional way. Persia would retain ultimate political control, but Judea would have a local governor, a local person elevated, and some decision-making and power over everyday life would be with the people. So, exiled Judeans returned. Mostly, it was descendants of the original exiles, but some of the first generation had lasted and got to return. These folks returned to Jerusalem and set about the difficult work of rebuilding their city and their homeland. There was joy, and there was relief, and there was thanksgiving. But it was not a simple or a completely peaceful time. Conflict erupted between those who were returning on the one hand and those who had either remained among the rubble or moved in during the interim. Conflicts arose about power and influence and who should get to make decisions about whatever was going to come next. Those who left, after all, had been the leaders in the community. That's why they were taken. They were the educated and the influential. I can imagine that after they returned, they assumed that their families would naturally, once again, resume their positions of influence. And I imagine that that didn't go over very well with those who had been in the land the whole time. One flashpoint of conflict was rebuilding the temple. In the first chapter of Haggai, we learn that some of the recently returned people thought that the temple building was going too fast, too many resources were going into it, that the community couldn't afford it just yet. 
They wanted to focus on reclaiming the land that belonged to their families and building their own homes and their own wealth and their own position. Haggai, in a fiery oracle, reminds them that their homes are already fine, that their paneled walls betray that they already have wealth enough. They are, according to Haggai, focusing too much on their own purposes and their own wealth. They must give something to God, too. They have their priorities all wrong. The temple must be built, and it must be built right away, because it represents the core of the people, their allegiance to the God who sustained them during the exile, the God who brought them back out of exile, and the God who had promised never to forsake them. Without the temple, they would not be they. And so the rebuilding began. But it was half-hearted. It was not going well. Haggai pronounces another word from God to the people, this time a challenge and a promise. The challenge is, just look at what has been built so far. Those of you who can remember that old temple, the Temple of Solomon, with all its splendor and its glory, think, remember that. And now, look at what's in front of you. Look at what you've done so far. It's nothing. It doesn't measure up. But there's also a promise. Take courage. Work, for I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Do not be afraid. You can do it, and you will not be alone. All shall be as well as it was before. That glorious temple had stood as the place of connection for the people and Israel, the appointed place in which God abided with the people. Its glory was a reminder of the glory of all of creation. Its rituals and the rules that governed them were a way to focus the people on living a with God life. Everything that the temple did and stood for was to remind the people that they were set-apart people living with God and God with them, that there was a covenant to be kept. The people who return with God must reclaim that. They must reclaim that embodiment of the place that was the symbol of God's presence with them. And they did. They rebuilt it, and they rebuilt it again, and they remodeled it. And that point of connection was not finally destroyed until centuries later in 70 CE when Rome came in. But the goal of a life lived with God could never be destroyed. That the people carried with them into the diaspora after Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. It was carried with them in books, in teaching, in memory, in ritual, in prayer, and in life lived according to the commandments. Temple life was taken inward. And the life lived with God was, of course, carried to us in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, who came to teach us that the realm of God would not be like an earthly realm with systems of domination and fear, not even temple systems that participated in domination and fear. 
Instead, God's realm would begin within, as love and unity, as forgiving and being forgiven. As we pray and as we work for peace and justice, as we feed the hungry and clothe the naked, visit the sick and in prison, as we follow on Jesus' way, we are rebuilding what was torn down. The church has carried these traditions, the teachings of Jesus and about Jesus, through 2,000 years of our history, through every kind of error and mistake, beginning when the church became complicit with the empire in the fourth century. Through wars of conquest and colonization, through inquest and persecution of pagans and Jews and witches, through schism and division, across the Reformation, and the ongoing refraction of the church into ever more narrowly defined denominations, through every kind of heresy and error, including some of our current public errors like the prosperity gospel, which is captivating America and convincing people that God's goal is not to make us loved and whole and good, but rich and satisfied. Through all of that, the beating heart of the life with God tradition survived. I imagine sometimes what it would be like to have grown up outside of the church. My whole life I've been in the church, and my whole life the church has been a place of refuge and joy and mercy, a wonderful place, a safe place, a life-giving place. But sometimes I pause and I think about what the church looks like from the outside, from one not brought up in it. What would I see if I didn't already feel the good inside? Well, I might see the stories about pedophile priests in the Catholic Church. I might see the stories of the greed of TV evangelists who prey on vulnerable people for their money. I might see the ignorance that says to follow God, you must deny what your God-given brain tells you about science and evolution, about climate change. I might see the gross hypocrisy of Christian politicians who want to make it illegal for people of faith to feed hungry people in the park or leave water for desperate refugees in the desert. I would see churches fixating on the LGBTQ community and telling the lie that LGBTQ people need to be fixed. And not just telling the lie, but working to pass legislation to enforce that lie on other people. I'd see all that our Christian history contains of anger and hatred and violence and hypocrisy and greed. If I were one of the nuns, those who check the box N-O-N-E, none, on surveys about their religious tradition, I'm not sure what would make me want to change that if I looked at the church just from the outside. I might wonder, what on earth is the church good for? Why would I go there? What is there in that place that will nourish a frail human soul? And then I am reminded of the goodness that I have received at church. And I'm reminded that it is our job 
as members of the church, to spread that goodness. I am reminded of the holiness and compassion of the people with whom I've worshipped over the years. Not perfection, but true, deep human goodness. I remember the experience of God's love, not just hearing about it, but experiencing it in community, in music, in the sacrament of communion, in service to other people, and in prayer. The presence and experience of God in studying scripture and reading about people struggling all across our history. The stories of God with and for people over and over and over again. I look around and I think, it isn't much what we've been able to preserve of the God with us tradition. It may be that it's taken us 2,000 years and we have still only laid the paving stones of a new understanding of God's presence with us, the paving stone of a new temple. But God is present. And here we are again, trying to understand and live through a time of cultural and political upheaval, trying to understand what is left of a tradition that many people believe is waning, and some believe can never be rebuilt. But no matter which of the many branches of Christianity you enter, you will find people filled up with God's spirit, following in the way of Jesus, living the way of love. To them and to us, God says, yet now take courage. Take courage, every one of you seeking to be with God. Take courage, mission committee and Hoyt Street food providers. Take courage, Sunday school teachers and church musicians. Take courage, tenders of the congregation, those who pray and visit and those who feed and welcome. Take courage, green team, and all of you who are working for justice and peace. Do not be afraid. Work, for I am with you. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. The last things that you build will contain everything that belongs to God, not ransacked and stolen gold and silver, but love and justice, compassion and welcome, and joy in the presence of God. Listen, listen, listen.